Well, on October 31st, 1517, which is 500 years ago, this coming Tuesday, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. He was calling for scriptural debate on the Roman Catholic Church's practice of indulgences, specifically was the issue. And although it was not his original intent, that would this that that act kicked off what became known as the Protestant Reformation, which the Reformation ended up wrestling back the gospel uh, from the Catholic Church, who had corrupted it with man-made traditions. And the Reformation, the Reformers, they did this through a return to the Scripture, return to the Word of God. The initial hope of Luther was not to uh, leave or, or break apart the church, but to reform the church. That was his desire, for the church to change and be conformed to Scripture, not leave it. But it grew apparent in time uh, that that wasn't going to be the case, uh, particularly in 1521 when Pope Leo X uh, excommunicated him. And so uh, Luther responded uh, by burning the decree. He wasn't too concerned about it. He burned the decree. Um, he and the other Protestants, they were accused of many things during that, that time, during the Reformation. Uh, one of those things they were accused of was causing disunity, was causing division. Uh, they were disrupting the visual church, right? You've got the church, the Catholic church, and, and now that they're, they're causing this problem, it's, it's, it's a division, and this was viewed as a bad thing, so they were accused of, of you know, causing disunity. Um, when John Calvin later wrote in the 1530s his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is essentially an explanation of the faith, he, he prefaced it. It wasn't his original intention to do this, but he ended up uh, writing a, a prefatory letter to the king of France uh, to explain Protestant theology to them because, to him, to the king, because they were so badly misrepresented. And, and so he, he wanted to set the record straight and explain it to him. So he's got this big volume and he writes this letter to the king to go with it. In it, in that prefatory letter, he mentions how, as he calls them, the Romanists, charged the Protestants with new teaching that caused them to be schismatical, that is, divisive. And that their movement, this Protestant movement, was bearing the bad fruit, these people charged, of large number of sects and of seditious disturbances. And among Calvin's responses in this uh, preface to his work in this letter uh, is that he says, if anyone was actually acquainted with the words of Paul, then they would not be charging the Protestants with anything novel, with anything new. They're not teaching anything new. It's his way of saying we're returning to Scripture and even what the early church believed and taught, men like Augustine. However, there is no denying that there was a division. There was a split, a separation. But there's some questions that arise about that. One is, was this a bad thing that there was this split? It's one question. Another question is, whose fault was this, really, this division, this split? Was it Luther's fault 
for insisting on the authority of Scripture to settle disputes and to guide the church's doctrine and the church's life and the church's practice? Or were the seeds of disunity already sown by those who had long ago corrupted the gospel and distorted the gospel of grace and undermine, undermined Scripture's authority? Who was who at fault here? Was this really a split in the actual bride of Christ? Or was this a clarifying moment of separation where the bride of Christ came out of Rome and it had a clarifying moment of separation that is to be celebrated? What is it? This question, this issue of Christian unity is an important one, and debate continues on this today. What constitutes true Christian unity? Is unity primarily an external thing, where we all fly under the same banner, the same name, whatever that happens to be, it's an organization of some sort? Is that, is that what, what it is? Or is it something deeper? What role does doctrine have in Christian unity? Or is the saying correct that doctrine divides? And therefore, we shelve that when we have discussions of unity. That's for the classroom, that's for academics, that's, for, that's merely for your thinking if you want to go there. And otherwise, in, in discussions of unity, it just causes division. We see the importance of Christian unity in the prayer that Jesus makes in John chapter 17. In verse 23, he prays this. He prays to the Father that believers would be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. That they would be one, that, that the world may know that you sent me. So we see, okay, this is, this is important. Unity is a part of Christian witness according to Christ. And so the last thing we want to do is violate unity. And corrupt our testimony. We don't, we don't want to do that. So then this question is incredibly important. What is Christian unity? On what grounds do we unite? And so over the next couple of weeks, the next three Sundays to be specific, we are going to go through a series um, on the, the biblical basis of Christian unity. Biblical basis of Christian unity. With the hope that this will encourage us, will strengthen us, strengthen our resolve to practice uh, biblical Christian unity uh, right here as we go out from this place, as we perhaps work alongside other churches. Uh, we want to be confident and, 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 and as sure as we can be about what the scripture teaches about, um, about Christian unity. And so I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 17 in your Bibles. John chapter 17. And we're going to look at this chapter to see what it says with regard to Christian unity. And as you're turning there, um, just a little heads up of where we're going to go the next couple weeks. We're in John 17 this week. Next week we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. And then the week after that we're going to look at 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. Uh, where we're going to look at where Paul talks about uh, even necessity of division. So this week for now, we're John chapter 17, 
Our main focus is going to be verse 11, but I'm going to read the entire chapter so that we can see it in its context, and uh, hopefully, you know, we want to interpret this rightly. So, context is good. So, let's, let's read this. In verse 1, and, and, and just for, for the first five verses, we're going to see that Jesus... Uh, prays for himself. He's with his disciples. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the eve of his crucifixion. He's about to be arrested, and he prays, and, and here's what he prays. First for himself, he's, it says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And now he transitions and he begins to pray for his disciples. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am continuing to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And now in these final verses, he's going to extend this and pray for all New Testament believers, all who would come to believe. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I want to 
focus in uh, more closely on verse 11. Zero in on that, which is really the fundamental prayer, especially that second half of verse 11, is the fundamental prayer of this chapter where Jesus prays for unity. And, and here's the outline that we're going to look at uh, today. Oh, look at that. It's a little blurry, but it's behind me there. Uh, this, is, this is where we're going to go. Um, we're going to look first at the subjects of unity. That is, that true Christian unity is for those whom God calls out of the world. We're going to see the origin of unity, that true Christian unity has its origin in God. And, and finally, the nature of unity, that true Christian unity begins with a unity of essence that's in our very being of who we are. And the thing that unites these three points together is the fact that Christian unity doesn't begin with what we do, but it begins with what God does. It doesn't start with an organization or even a confession, good as these things may be. It starts with God's real and actual work in His people. If we start with an external organizational unity, then we've got the cart before the, her- the horse. This is, this is ba- that's backwards. And, and hopefully we will see that quite clearly. Just as we begin, I, I do want to mention this, this book. This is a book called The Basis of Christian Unity by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, I just want to reference it because I'm indebted to this book and his understanding uh, of this subject that we're, we're talking about. And uh, I commend this book to you. It's, um, it's not even 80 pages. Uh, it's a great read. Um, and so if you're interested in, in looking at this further, uh, this is from an address he gave in uh, 1962. But I just want to uh, bring that to your attention. He'll make his way. Some of his thoughts will make its way into the sermon for sure. But All right, so number one, the subjects of unity. Who is this for? True Christian unity is for those whom God calls out of the world. So an important question in this text is who is Jesus praying for? Who is he praying for? We read in verses 1 to 5 that he first prays for himself. And again, remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is the, uh, he's about to be arrested and, and crucified. He's with his disciples. And in verse 6, after he does pray for himself, he shifts and begins to pray, it says there, for the people whom you gave me out of the world. The people whom the Father gave him out of the world. And so then if you follow the pronouns through this chapter after this, you'll see a lot of they and a lot of thems uh, throughout this chapter. It's talking about this group. It's a particular group of people being referred to. And so in verse 11, which we're going to zone in on, when he prays for the Father to keep them, that they may be one, it's a reference specifically to those whom the Father has taken out of the world and has given to, to his Son, Jesus. In verse 20, we see that he's not just talking about those whom the Father gave to Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, but also those who believe in Christ in days to come, which includes us here today. This idea of God calling uh, people out of the world and giving them to His Son, Christ, is found uh, throughout the Gospel of John, not just here. So if you'll recall in in chapter 6, verse 44... 
Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then in chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, My Father, who has given them to me, his disciples, his children, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So again, notice the subjects, the people he's praying for, it's a restricted reference. He's praying for a specific people who've come out of the world because the Father has given them to his Son, Jesus. I do think that this, uh, that the doctrine of election is in view here. As Ephesians 1 says, uh, God chose us in Christ before the foundations, foundation of the world. Uh, this is a, a decision made by God in eternity past. But uh, the thing that I want us to focus on here is the fact that these people actually come out of the world. To Christ. They come from darkness and they come to light. In verse 9, he repeats this this whole thing. I'm not praying for the world, he says, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So they've actually had a change. They've actually come out of darkness into light, out of the world. These people that the Father has has given to Christ, uh, they have certain characteristics, this group. And this is apparent as we read uh, this chapter. And so we'll just mention a few of these characteristics briefly. So in verses 2 and 3, we see that these people have been given eternal life, which is described as knowing God and and knowing His Son, knowing Christ. So this group of people that Jesus is praying for, the subjects of unity, they know God and they know Jesus and they've received eternal life. Uh, It's again there at the end of verse 8 where they they believe that the Father sent Jesus. This is what Christ says. This group believes these things, but they've also, it says, that they have received and they have kept God's word. So they've believed Jesus' word that he brought to them, his teaching, his instruction. If you'll recall in John 6, many people said this is a hard teaching and, and we're out of there. They abandoned him. But these people he's praying for have received his word. They've believed it and they've kept it. They don't just say, oh, it's important, sure, yeah, it matters, it's it's an important thing he said, it's an important word. They they receive it, they believe it, they stand upon it. Verse 6a, they have kept your word, they believe it and they submit to it. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Verse 14, I have given them your word. We also see they're sanctified by this word. In verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So these are people who receive the word of God and are being sanctified by it. These people he prays for are not only separated from the world, as we've already seen, but we're also told that they're hated by the world. Verse 14 again, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so Jesus is praying for a specific group, that is, those who actually, truly, really do belong to him. It's not a prayer for just anyone who claims to be a Christian, 
but those who are actually given to him by the Father. And these people have certain characteristics to them. They believe the Father sent Christ. They've received the word of Christ. They've come out of the world and they're receiving the world's scorn due to their identification with Christ Jesus. And many people out there in the time of the disciples in our day claim to be Christians, but they are not described by these things. They're not characterized by these things. And Jesus is not praying for them. True Christian unity is for those whom God calls out of the world. That's who he's praying for. That's who Jesus asks the Father to unite. We must understand that conversion to Christ, that becoming a Christian, is a real thing. That an actual conversion takes place. Something actually happens. It's not merely something that just is decided like on, you know, whether we become part of the Rotary Club or not, or whether we eat this or that. It's not just something that happens. It's just a decision up in the brain. There's an actual change that occurs. Something actually happens. It's called conversion for a reason, because there is a conversion. These people undergo a change. And God actually gives these people to His Son, Christ. He actually transfers them from darkness to light. Settle down. Now this transfer from darkness to life, the light, this, this real, uh, you know, the Father giving His people to, the, to His Son... This is not a reality that we can, you know, touch and grab physically, but it is a reality. It's a real thing. And though we can't touch it, we can see the fruit of this reality, the fruit of this conversion in the character of the people. In the fruit that's produced, in receiving the word, in keeping the word, in believing what Jesus says of himself, in believing what Jesus says of the Father, in believing that He reveals to us the Father, and He comes from the Father. We read in verse 12 that Judas was the son of destruction. It says that he was the son of destruction, uh, and it tells us, it shows us that he was not actually one that the Father gave to Jesus, because he says, I've lost, I've lost none of the ones you gave me, except the son of destruction, so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And so Judas belongs to another category. He's not part of this group that the Father gave to Jesus, or he would have been kept. And we see, we know, that Judas caused a major disruption in this group to their outward display of unity. When one of the twelve betrays Christ... That's a fairly significant fracture, I would say, in the external organization of the disciples. And then he takes his own life and their short one. That's a very, very big, big fracture. And yet, Judas did not break the fundamental unity of those whom the Father gave to Christ. That unity was maintained. It remained intact. 
So discernment for us is necessary as we think of, of church unity, of Christian unity. When Peter, in Acts chapter 8, discerned that Simon the magician was a false convert, he called him out and said, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with the Lord. He, he professed faith, he'd been baptized, he fooled Philip. <coughs> can't even breathe on it. <laughs> when Peter addressed Simon the magician, Simon was able to fool Philip. Simon was able to fool Peter for a time with his profession, with some sort of, you know, it, it, it wasn't obvious to them at first. But, Peter, but Simon eventually outed himself by wanting to pay money to receive and give the Holy Spirit. And, Simon, and, and Peter knew enough to know this man is not right with the Lord. He has not been converted. His heart is not right, he says. He had not come out of the world. He was still, Peter says, in the bond of wickedness. And so Peter rebukes him. And the result of that is there's some measure of division. There's a break here in the outward organization of the church. We can't know everyone's heart. We're not called to know everybody's heart. But we are called to be discerning in our practice of unity. True Christian unity doesn't begin with an external organization, but with the work of God. Unity is for those whom he has called out of the world and has given to his Son. It's not just for anybody who wants it. The subjects of Jesus' prayer are those whom the Father has given to him. Secondly, the origin of unity. True Christian unity is from God. It has its origin in God. So let's read second half of verse 11. Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So here's, here's this prayer for unity. And we've already determined that the subjects of this unity are those whom the Father has called out and given to His Son. But who makes this unity happen here? Who makes this happen? It's God. He says, Holy Father, keep them. That, so that, in order that, for the purpose of, so that they may be one. Jesus is praying for the Father to bring about this unity. He asks the Father to keep His children. That is, to hold them. To keep them from falling. To keep them from falling away into destruction. He prays that the Father will do this so that they may be one. They may be united, unified. And so the Father's preservation of His children is one of the means of our unity. It's one of the ways that he keeps his church united, is he doesn't let his children fall away completely. Christian unity is firstly and primarily 
a work of God. Nowhere in this text, in fact, nowhere in this text are Christians told to do anything. This is a prayer. Jesus is asking his Father to do something. We're not told to do anything here. It's a prayer for God to act. And I would add, we we should not think that the Son's prayer is going to go unanswered by the Father. They are perfectly one and on the same page. This prayer will be answered. As surely as the Father will not let anything or anyone snatch any of His children out of His hand, John 10, He will preserve His church. He will preserve it in unity and bring all of His children finally and completely to Himself. Though the church is oppressed on every side, though there be those that hate her, as we just sang, though we be hated by the world, the Father will preserve His people. He'll preserve His church. The ultimate fulfillment of this will be one day when we reach the new heavens and the new earth and we have glorified bodies and sin is finally and completely defeated and death, the final enemy, is completely and utterly defeated. But, as we'll see as we go, especially through the next couple of weeks, it's also a reality that is experienced now. It's not perfect, it's it's imperfectly experienced now, but it is is experienced now. And there is a wonderful hope and encouragement in this. Unity doesn't hang entirely on you. You. And on me, and this is very good news. The kingdom of God and its advancement doesn't hinge on our ability to get the right organization just so. It's God's work. As He keeps His children, He keeps His church. John 17 is often used to say that You know, the world knowing the Father sent Jesus depends on us. You know, we read that. We'll cover it, see it in a a little bit here uh, in 21 and 23. He's praying the Father would keep his children united so that the world may know that the Father sent Jesus. And then it's taken from there to say, well, we better unite in our organization here. The world has no hope. They're not going to know if we aren't together in the same group or the same organization or the same church or same umbrella, whatever it is, then what hope is there for the people? Well, our hope is that God will answer this prayer. The Father will answer Christ's prayer. It's not primarily on our ability to get our our organizations just so. And praise the Lord, that's not the case. That would be terrible news. Unity begins with God saving and keeping his children. He brings about unity. And I certainly do think that there's an implication here for us to maintain the unity that God gives. But it's not something that we're to fabricate you know, by downplaying differences. That's, that's clearly not the case. And we're going to talk more about next week as we get to Ephesians 4 about the call to maintain unity uh, that'll, be, that'll be more next week. But for now, 
what we need to see that this is teaching us is that unity begins with God, that it's primarily and firstly His work that He brings about. And, and the reality in John 17 is we're not actually called to do anything in this passage. It's, it's, the, it's Christ uh, asking the Father to do this work. So number three, the nature of unity. True Christian unity begins with a unity of essence. As we saw in verse 11, Jesus prays that the Father would keep them in your name which you have given me, he says, that they may be one even as we are one. So amazingly, the unity that Jesus prays for is a unity that is comparable in some way to the unity of the Trinity itself. He says, as we are one. This is exalted stuff here we're talking about. But what does he mean by this? What what does this mean? That our unity would somehow be comparable to the Trinity. Well, the Trinity is the doctrine that God is one in essence or nature, but is three in his persons. So there are three distinct persons, yet they share in the divine nature. The unity that the Father and Son and the Spirit have then in their purpose, in their action, uh, this unity that, that we can see by the way you know, the Father sends the Son and the Son comes to die for sinners and the Spirit unites believers to and convicts of sin and unites believers to Christ and we see this unity in their action. All of this stems from the fact that they share a unity of essence, a unity in their nature, in their, in their being, the divine nature. So the unity is one that is, the, is at the root of who God is, at the root of his existence, at the root of his being, his very essence. So because God is one in nature, the three persons of the Trinity act and do everything in perfect unity. So it's, this is, I mean, when we talk about the Trinity, it's, it's certainly difficult theology. There's a whole vocabulary, essentially, uh, built to help explain this, this doctrine. But what I want us to understand is that the Trinity's unity is a unity that exists at the very core or the very essence of God's being. It's not just some ex, external or outward uh, display The external unity in his actions, for example, is driven by a deeper unity in God's essence. In a similar way, Christians share a unity that goes to the core of who we are. At the core of our being. It's much deeper and it's much more amazing than some fabricated external unity. And this unity that we share comes by way of our being united with Christ. And so hang with me as we go to verse 21 to 23. In these verses, Jesus expands on what he prays in verse 11. So I think verse 11 is really the fundamental prayer. that We be one as the Father and the Son are one. And in verse 11, it's expanded a little bit. 
So Jesus prays there that they may all be one, verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may, they also may be in us. And then the second half of 22, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. So Jesus is speaking of believers being, he says, in us, that is, in the Father and the Son. And he speaks of Jesus being in believers and the Father being in Jesus. So what we have, we have believers, we are in the Father and the Son, and the Father and the Son are in us. So Jesus is, is saying it here. This is, again, can be confusing language. But it's ultimately describing, it is a reference to our union with Christ. When believers are called out of the world, we are spiritually united to Christ. We come out from under Adam's headship and we come under Christ's headship. We are born again. We are made new. We are given a new heart. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4, we become partakers of the divine nature. This doesn't mean we become divine, but it's a reference to this mysterious union we have with Christ in which we are in Him as He is in us. We are united to Him. Christians are actually changed, actually made new at their conversion. And we are united to our Savior and all the blessings of salvation come to us because we are united to Christ Jesus. So we are given a new heart of flesh. We're born again. We're made new. We're not what we once were. We're, We've left the world. We're, We're made new. Jesus becomes the head and his people become the spiritual body. You know that analogy that Paul uses in Corinthians? It's the same concept of our union with Christ. Jesus is the head. We become his his spiritual body. And every person who is born again, who is a Christian, shares in this. We together form Christ's body. We share this in common. And this is the nature of our unity. This is is what I mean by our, our, our unity is a unity of essence. It's who we are now as God's children. We are, at our core, new people with new hearts. We then together share in this reality. Everyone who's gone through this, who's been regenerated and born again, together share in this. Christians are those who are born again, united to Christ. And again, although we, you know, we can't touch this reality, it's nevertheless a very true and very real spiritual thing, that we are united to Christ. And again, though we can't touch this reality, necessarily see it with our eyes in one sense, we can still see the effects of this. And fruits of being united to Christ. We've already looked at some of them, the characteristics of these people Jesus prays for. We now love God. If you love God truly, it's because you've been united to Christ. We love His people. This is the effects of this union with Christ. 
We receive His Word now. We know the Father sent Christ. We are sanctified by His Word because we are His people. It's who we are now at our very core, at our being, in our essence. We are the Lord's people. We're united to Him. We're His. We belong to Him. And all of this comes to us through our union with Christ. And it comes to everyone who is united to Christ. And that's who Jesus is praying for. There is no unity apart from this. And so Christians are together made Christ's body. In the 1960s, evangelical Christians in England were in the midst of controversy surrounding how to engage more liberal Christians, especially in the Church of England. How to engage with professing Christians who were out-and-out liberals. A number of these evangelicals who believed the great truths of the gospel nevertheless thought they needed to treat liberal Christians essentially as brothers and sisters. Even though many of these people denied the Scriptures as the Word of God, the authority and errancy of Scripture, they denied the deity of Christ, many of them. They denied the Trinity. Some of these very things that Jesus says are, you know, characterizes His people in John 17 and other important truths from Scripture that Christians believe, many of these liberal professing Christians denied these things, and yet many evangelicals didn't want to separate from them didn't want, you know, wanted to somehow include them in the church and, and not be disruptive. Martin Lloyd-Jones saw how this simply didn't fit with their professed understanding of the gospel. And he argued that the question everyone should be asking is, what is a Christian? Christian unity is for Christians. So then... What is a Christian? And that makes a lot of sense to me, that that would be an important question to, to settle as we think of what is Christian unity. Well, what is a Christian? When you have contradictory and incompatible understandings of what a Christian is, as evangelicals and liberals did, then there is no real unity. It's not straightforward. And we need to be honest about that. I think everyone should be honest about that. That would be very helpful. There's no real unity if you cannot even agree on what a Christian is. And we see in John 17 that in our essence, Christians are those who've been born again by the miraculous, converting, regenerating work of the triune God. And they receive this word and they know Christ is from the Father, a Christian is one who has at their core been made new. So we, we cannot, as individuals or as a church, pretend that we have Christian unity with those who would deny this, with those who are not Christians as the Bible defines it. One of the uncomfortable parts of what I'm saying is that this involves making certain judgments. It involves discernment. And if there's one thing that is not tolerated today in almost any circle, is a, any form of judgment. 
Now, we are not the final arbiters of anyone's salvation, but we see an appropriate places to make judgment calls in the Scriptures. The practice of church discipline, for example, we see in that judgment is to be made. If someone's profession of faith is not matched by their lifestyle, then they are to be, there's, there's steps to follow. They're even outlined carefully by Christ in Matthew 18 uh, to follow. But if they, if they refuse to repent and align themselves with Scripture, then they're to be placed outside the church. And friends, that is a, that is a form of judgment. Paul explicitly says, 1 Corinthians 5, you know, what have we to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church that we are to judge? I mean, clearly there's a, there's a type of judgment that is to be made. And so we can't make the mistake of just simply giving anyone the benefit of the doubt that simply decides they want to profess and claim to be a Christian. Again, the example of Peter with Simon, the magician. He didn't do that. Christian unity begins with a unity in our, our being, a unity of essence, who we are before it ever has anything to do with our external practice. Unity is something we are inwardly. And as we will look at more next time, it's a unity in believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll look more at, at the, the role of doctrine even in next, week, next week's sermon. But it's a unity in believing the gospel of Jesus Christ that requires receiving certain truths, certain doctrines, believing these things, which cannot be dismissed or overlooked for the sake of an external unity. And so we, we cannot compromise this. Whether it's in our practice of unity with other churches in this very city, whether it's in our support of missionaries, or whether in moving forward it's cooperation with other churches in missionary endeavors or conferences or whatever else it might be, we cannot compromise on, on this. So as we think of Christian unity... We see in John 17 that true Christian unity begins with what God does. That's where it starts. And there is no unity apart from that. God the Father gives people to His Son. He keeps those people so that they will be united, unified. Through the Spirit's work of uniting us to Christ, He has made us one with Himself and by extension, one with each other, with others who are united to Him. It doesn't begin with what we do. It doesn't begin with our externals. Anything external must extend from who we are in Christ Jesus. From sharing an identity as those who have been taken from darkness to light by the grace and the power of God. It is here that true Christian unity is found and to be built on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you've not left us in darkness. God, our, our only hope is that you would be merciful and kind to us. Our only hope is your gracious power to redeem us and to keep us. And God, I pray that our practice of unity right here in this church with one another would flow out of this that we would be 
those united in the gospel, that we would understand, that we would view each other as fellow saints, fellow redeemed individuals who've been united to Christ by your grace and mercy. And as we interact with believers from outside of this church, whether it's in this community, family members, or beyond, wherever it may be, may we understand this and may we practice a biblical unity. And I pray that you would continue to even just bring clarity to our understanding of unity in the coming weeks as we continue to walk through this. We pray that our practice would honor you. And God, we, we, we declare our, our, uh, our hope of unity is you. And, and God, as much as we need you to keep us to be saved in the end, we need you to keep us together and unified. And we see the hope of this text says that you will do this. And so we praise you for this. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and grace to us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.